Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. Just as we were coming on the air, uh, it seems that Leighton Flowers is very busy today at the computer. He's just madly typing away um, on the stuff he always types away on. And um, it just posted. Well, actually, this is weird. I just looked back over at it. This is 22 hours ago, and it just popped up. I do not understand the algorithms as to what they think you're supposed to be looking at. Anyways, this just popped up on my screen, literally. It wasn't there. Then I looked over, and it's there. And uh, someone had posted, and man, the next to impossible to read. Reform Doxology had posted, uh, Jesus died for his people, Jesus died for his friends, Jesus died for his sheep, Jesus died for his bride. Jesus dying for his own is one of the hardest biblical realities to swallow in the scriptures. Yes, truth. Gave references. And of course, you know, the debate coming up on that subject. And Leighton writes, um, Jesus died for Paul, Galatians 2.20. Therefore, he didn't die for anyone else but Paul. See how the negative inference fallacy works. Well, that's what Leighton has been taught to do uh, by David Allen. Um, but no one, again... If Leighton had ever actually been reformed, he would understand these things, but obviously, clearly, he never was. Um, he would understand that when you point to Paul's statement, Christ, I, I died with Christ, Christ died with me, there's an entire theology there. There's a theology of union with Christ. There's a theology of the intercessory work of Christ for those who are in him. There's this whole thing that if you take that perspective, will lead you inevitably to universalism. You have to end up there. Penal substitution atonement is a reformed doctrine. There is no reason, if you're not reformed, to hold to penal substitution atonement because of what it means. Um, and so it, it just it just always I, it, I was talking with Rich about it and, he, and we're like, hey, is it is it just a couple weeks before a, a debate trip? And so every every weird thing in the world is getting thrown around out there, and it's true, it is. Um, all the stuff that normally happens, including physical weakness, um, prior to a, prior to a winter trip, is happening again. Um, just like one or two years ago, I think it was one year ago, maybe two years ago. Anyways, um, and so, but at the same time, you've got all this faux stuff. People putting, you know, certain would-be cult leaders putting out videos all over the place. And people keep sending them to me, and I'm like, it doesn't really say what it is. I click on it, I was like, oh, good grief. I've had a couple of people send stuff to me from this guy. As soon as I see what it is, I turn it off, and then I go find the person that sent it to me, and I remove them as a follower, and I block them. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. My mute and block list has become very, very long, and I, I, I appreciate the fact that you can remove followers. You know, there's a lot of people who don't want to do that. Oh, I, I want to get to a thousand followers. I've got over 130,000 followers, and, I, and people are always like, "I don't like this follower." I don't even know how to find out who the followers are. But when I find somebody, you can click on their thing that says they follow you, and then there's the thing you can remove them as a follower, and I do that all the time, uh, just you know, so they don't have to deal with my terrible, horrible beliefs. So anyway. All sorts of stuff to get to, but I, I figure I might as well continue along those lines uh, before. What we're going to do, is I'll, I'll do with some of this um, uh, reform stuff first. <clears throat> then uh, I want to answer a Trent Horn statement that he made. Uh, look at 
an argument that Trent Horn makes in one of his books that will be relevant to the Ali Beth Stuckey program coming up um, on, you know, I, I should be careful about this. I don't know that it's, that it's live. Um, in fact, I, I can't believe that it would be. Well, anyways, somewhere uh, in the days prior to the two debates of Trent Horn. So somewhere before the 15th and the 16th. So on the 13th, okay, let's put it this way. On the 13th in Dallas, <clears throat> we're going to be on Ali Bestocki talking about Protestant Catholic stuff. It's going to be a little bit of an overdose, uh, I'm sure, for Trent Horn with me and vice versa, because then we're doing two debates back-to-back on the 15th and the 16th, um, which is which is a lot. Or is it the 16th and 17th? Hmm. Even I'd have to check that. I'm going to be in Houston on the 15th, so it's either the 15th, 16th, 16th, 17th. It's probably 16th, 17th, now that I think about it. Anyway, um, we're going to be talking about Roman Catholic stuff. We're going to be debating soul scripture. We're going to be debating purgatory. <clears throat> and so I want to look at some stuff that he said in one of his books um, just to help others prepare for that. And then if there's any time left after that, we'll we'll try to wrap up um, the um, Carl Truman lecture. Uh, only have a few minutes le- left. And there's an important part in that because the first section that I want to get to is on development of doctrine. So that's actually that actually that actually will will work well. Now I think about it. Wasn't planned, but that will actually flow fairly well out of the Trent Horn discussion. So uh, that's what we'll try to get done uh, today as best we can. And if the voice sticks with me, I'll, I'll have to admit a couple times the past couple days I sounded like Barry White, uh, not James White. And I should I should back off the volume even now. Um, just in case, because, um, yes, there's stuff going around and, and I'm dealing with it. All right. <clears throat> um, okay, two, two tweets um, from, um, from Leighton here that I um, want to deal with again. Um, and people say, why bother? Again, it's not that provisionism is all that big of a thing. I mean... The whole idea of, we've come up with a new movement. Uh, actually, we're just synergists, and we're just not nearly as deeply rooted in history as, as the other synergists came before us. Um, but uh, they're, they're, they're teachable moments. They're, they're opportunities to go, here is another misrepresentation, and it almost always is, um, and here's how you respond to it. So the one that I saw, this now says 14 hours again. Algorithms are algorithms. Um, they are <clears throat> very mysterious. Um, if Calvinism were true, so, so there's, a, there's a video. I'm not going to put the video up, but you can find it yourself. Uh, there's a video where this father, he has three kids. They all look the same age. In fact, they look like they may be triplets. Um, and he has them sitting there. Their eyes are closed. And he has, I don't know if it's a burrito or just what it is, but two of the kids, there's nothing on their plate when they open their eyes. And the other one has three burritos on their plate. One of them starts crying. The other one's going, what's going on? And the one in the middle gives one burrito to the one, one to the other. Okay? It's cute. You know, dad's seeing if, if, if he's training them to share and stuff like that. Very human. 
um, you know, pluck at the heartstrings, human type thing. Okay. So, um, if Calvinism were true, provisionists would have the heart of the kid in the middle who gave one of each to the people. All the while wondering why we are more benevolent than our father. Okay. So, once again, what you do is we don't, we don't care about God's glory. We don't care about God's holiness. We don't care about theodicy. We don't care about, even though Paul says God's going to be justified and what he doesn't matter. It's all about man. It's all about the creature. What you Calvinists and your focus upon God's holiness and glory and eternal purposes and oh, it's, just, it's all about man. It's all about us, man. Don't worry about other stuff. And so we are more benevolent than our father. Now think about this for just a moment. Because again, if, if, Leighton was ever reformed. He'd know this, and but has evidently forgotten stuff in that time period. <clears throat> it happens. It's convert syndrome. I've seen it many, many times. Um, we're talking about... Well, let's, let's talk about something that's super, super important. The e- eternal covenant of redemption. The, the pactum salutis. The, this is something that honestly, in some forms of... Um, Biblically bereft classical theology. How's that? Um, people who get so enamored with the um, with the framework that they forget that what enlivens and makes classical theology important and worthwhile is its intimate connection to Scripture. Um, the first time I ever taught on the attributes of God. <clears throat> Um, for Alpha and Omega Ministries. I'm not sure if you were there, if that was before you, if that already existed by the time you came along. That was already up there. Okay. <laughs> we already had the cassette tape. <laughs> we, had, we had the cassette tape on the Ghetto Blaster that we could d- duplicate. Yes, that was... <laughs> Man, we're getting old. <laughs> Five years in from... Five years from when we okay, all right. So probably about two years before you came along, we uh, I recorded uh, a seminar on the attributes of God. Okay, I'm a young seminary type guy, and young seminary type guys just get all excited about this kind of stuff as well. They should, <coughs> but even at that point in time, even though I did have quotes from someone like a Burkhoff or something like that, um, the focus was scripture. The focus, I recognized from the start that if you want Christ's sheep to be passionately involved in something, to believe something with passion that's going to last their whole life, you ground them in the scriptures. Everything you ground them in outside the scriptures can come and go. Ground them in the scriptures and they'll stay grounded. Um, that's, That's how the spirit works. <clears throat> and so we ground people in those scriptures and those scriptures reveal to us that th- these these beautiful doctrines that are related to one another and the reality is that when we talk about the attributes of God we talk about 
all the beautiful interconnectedness of Christian theology. When we talk about God's purposes, we talk about the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Like I said, I, I'm really concerned that some of these people, um, there is great beauty in recognizing, in, in allowing the Scriptures to reveal to us the beauty of the relationship of the divine persons. Now, if if you and some post-Nicene theologians got to this point, all right, they got to this point, and if, if you think that you just have to slavishly follow every post-Nicene theologian, uh, I just, I'll just point you to Calvin, who didn't. Um, he was willing to correct, based on Scripture. Um, and emphases, things like that, not just throw the whole thing out, but to go, eh, not really, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, you know? And so, anyway, when you get to the point, as some post-Nicene theologians did, to where the divine persons, their 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 reality of existence is limited to one part of the divine mind contemplating another part of the divine mind. Um, okay, just don't look me in the eye and say that's what the apostles believed. Just don't look at me in the eye and say that if you, even if you explained your position to the apostles, they'd go, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah." That's 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 where we're coming from. No, I I, I don't believe it. <clears throat> One of the things that I have loved for so long is to think about the condescension, love, and yet desire for self glorification that is seen in the roles played by Father, Son, and Spirit in bringing about redemption. Each divine person is taking a different role. And if that's just one thought bouncing off another thought and the two together make a third thought or something, wow, uh, forget that. That's not what the New Testament teaches. That's not how anyone reading the New Testament would go, oh yeah, I think that's what the uh, author is intended us to believe. So, that eternal covenant of redemption is to simply be washed away by the focus upon the creature. The focus upon the creature. And so, wondering why we are more benevolent than our Father, the Son takes on human flesh to redeem rebel sinners. See, I don't believe that provisionism has any room for a biblical anthropology, and especially a biblical doctrine of federal headship. It's just not there. You just, it, it, it's just not there. They don't believe it. They believe in the fundamental goodness of man. And they act that way, and they reason that way. Very, very clear. And so the condescension, the love demonstrated by Father, Son, and Spirit in redemption is washed away. Washed away. You never know. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, actually, some from Apologia, which I 
appreciate that. Anyway, um, so there's there's that one. Um, then <clears throat> more on the um, absurdity of of Baal Gate. <clears throat> Once again, we we have constant uh, proof being offered to us. Uh, that the people who have been rejecting Reformed theology don't know diddly about it, because it seems that most of these people had never read the London Baptist Confession of Faith or the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, and had never thought through what it says. And so their big thing again now. So now remember, just I just want to remember, remind everybody, this all started with one guy. There were three guys on the video, and one guy decided to say that the that reformed parents have the attitude of Moloch worshipers who are willing to throw their children on the fire as long as they get in as long as they get theirs they get their salvation then they can throw their children on the fire everything we want this absurdity and again that man didn't have any credibility then and now he's in about as much the same deficit spending situation with credibility as the United States government uh, and that's that's a lot, really is. Um, he got rightly destroyed by everybody, Arminians and everybody else, for such absurdity. Okay, rightly destroyed. So what did they do? They decided to cover it up by creating Baal Gate, which is not about how reformed parents think about their children. It's not about the lie. That, oh, hey, as long as I get mine, I don't care what happens to them. That absurdity. We, we're just going to try to forget that that was there. And now let's go after infant damnation. Not seemingly even knowing what the confessional position was. And again, and, and again, these, these folks, they're, they're not really a part of this conversation, but <clears throat> the serious people that produced the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I disagree with portions of the Westminster. They're relatively small portions, but I do disagree with portions of Westminster. And I do do so recognizing historical backgrounds and all that kind of fun stuff. And but even when you disagree, you have to recognize the incredible depth of thought and scholarship and reflection and debate. And one of the things that's wonderful about it <clears throat> is that, you know, London's Baptist Confession takes the Westminster and the Savoy and some others and, you know, makes some changes. And look, we can, for example, in the London Baptist Confession, we have the actual assertion of the uh, active and passive obedience of Christ, which is not in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But, there were many people who were framers of the Westminster who believed in that. But what they were doing, and I think Baptists need to hear this too, what they were doing is they are trying to provide a summary statement that would have the widest possible means of bringing the Reformed together without excluding people that didn't need to be excluded or including people that didn't need to be included. <clears throat> that's not an always that's not always an easy line to follow. And you can agree or disagree as to exactly how successful they were. But that's what they were trying to do. And the Presbyterians, something that the Baptists again need to hear this, Presbyterians have come, well, not all Presbyterians. 
<coughs> excuse me, um, a number of Presbyterians, I would say the majority, have come to understand that you have to allow for some variation of interpretation of the Westminster Confession of Faith, or you're going to be standing there all alone. <laughs> there's, there's, <clears throat> if you demand, um, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's, just like I do, type of thinking, you're not going to have a denomination. You're not going to have a church. You're not going to be able to cooperate together to accomplish things. And so the chapter 10, paragraph 3, which speaks of elect infants, is written in such a way as to allow a range of understanding. You could believe, if you wanted to, that all infants are elect, and there are people who believe that. You can believe that there are only certain infants that are elect, or that a small number of infants are elect. It doesn't say. That's how you especially deal with a subject like that, where, and this is the reality, where we don't have biblical revelation. What we're doing, and this is where we, we will never, there's, there, there is no reason to even talk to people who don't believe in Romans chapter 5 who don't believe in Ephesians chapter 1, and don't believe in John chapter 6, or, or have perverted, silly, upside-down, I'm going to stand on my head and spin in circles ways of trying to get around the sovereignty of God. We're not, we're not in the same group. We're not talking with you. Amongst the Reformed, who believe sola scriptura and tota scriptura and practice these things, then there is a limited amount of information. And so the way it's expressed is meant to allow for differing viewpoints without causing division. But it, what it does require you to do is take seriously the federal headship of Adam. Because if anyone is saved who is in Adam, it is by grace. Must be by grace. Can only be by grace. And it safeguards the freedom of God. He has, and I've said this, we've documented now from the beginning, God has just as much freedom in the salvation of infants as he does in adults. So, it's it's not a controversy. It has, you know, this was, def- you know, you can go back, you don't want to go back into, into the early church um, because it's been a controversy back then. <clears throat> and a lot of the answers, you're not going to want. The vast majority of them weren't, had nothing to do with all babies go to heaven. In fact, the development of infant baptism was part of all of that, despite what Ken Wilson's utter confusion is on that matter. <laughs> just so far off the map on that one, it's not even funny. But that, you know, I just thought about that. That might be causing some of the confusion with these guys, if they actually believe what he says about infant baptism and Augustine and stuff like that, because he's just totally, totally off on that. Um so maybe that is a part of it. I I don't know. You raised your microphone, so yeah. You know, it struck me when I read uh, the Westminster there, and I'm trying to sort out what their what Leighton is saying. Oh, that's the London Baptist too. They're identical, right? Yes. As, as as I read them, it's like, but wait a minute, guys, you don't understand. When you speak of someone who is saved, it is utterly improper to not refer to them as being elect. 
When you speak of the elect, it's improper not to refer to them as being saved. The two concepts go to hand-to-hand together. You can't have one without the other. So when they read this, they're constantly looking for the non-elect, the non-elect. But if you look at number four, it speaks of others who are not elect. Number three does not speak of the non-elect. However you want to understand it, whether you agree with it or not, if you're going to apply what's there, the point of calling them elect is because they're saved. The point of calling them saved is that they're elect. I don't understand why that's hard for them. Well, and the the most important part of it is that this is um, this has to be taken. It must be understood as protecting the freedom of God. I was looking for a. I thought I had it in Dropbox, <clears throat> but I don't have it in Dropbox on my home computer. I was going to read the rest of it, but anyway, uh, it's it's protecting the freedom of God, and again. You just sit back and go, so y'all are just catching up on what was said almost 400 years ago now? <laughs> okay. Whatever. <laughs> nothing nothing like that. All right. Um, so, yeah, he said James White rejects the idea that every aborted baby goes to heaven. I, I Again, you have to... You, there, there isn't any reason, unfortunately, to talk with these folks because... That we don't have a common foundation, um, so there. The entire theology of God, the entire theology of the triune work of redemption and federal headship and holiness, and you know, come to think of it, sadly, in light of this, I I would imagine that when provisionists, if they watch the debate I did with Shabir Ali in the uh, in the mosque in Erasmus, South Africa in 2013. Wow, so coming up on 11 years ago now. Wow. Um, as I spoke to those Muslims about how they can have peace with God, I don't think provisionists would agree with what I said. I don't think they would. They don't have the they don't have a a similar uh anthropology. It's oh, it's that's that's sad. That is really, really sad. All right, I continue on. Um a thread developed, which is very, very interesting, um, about... Uh, I don't have the entire thread. I have Leighton's responses. And this was about Judas, and then uh, Namor jumped in and asked about Cyrus. <clears throat> so, someone asked, in light of his rejection of the decree of God... What about Judas? Could Judas have not betrayed Jesus, even though this is the prophecy? Now, stop for a second. Algo knows this. And the various Algos from different countries that I used to meet while traveling, who would claim the title of Algo for this country and that country and stuff like that, which is sort of cool. Anyway... I'm not sure what happens when Algo travels to those countries. I'm not sure if they have a thumb war to see who's the, who the real Algo is. I, mean, I don't know. Um, but when, what debate from 2014 contained an extensive discussion of Judas, the man I was debating, who is now dead, the man I was debating, 
He did not die immediately thereafter. I want to clarify that right now. It's many years. <laughs> um, but uh, the man I was debating uh, said Judas could have not betrayed Jesus. <coughs> Remember who that was? Remember what the subject was? It was open theism. It was open theism. So, how do open theists answer that question? The way that Leighton Flowers did. He says, yes, he could have chose not to betray Jesus, and someone else could have, but if that is what happened, then that would have been the prophecy. The prophecy isn't the cause of the event. Now, this is where, no matter how hard he tries, Leighton's position's utterly incoherent. Every time he has been pressed, Chris Date pressed him on Genesis 50, the blather that came out of his mouth is just that. It's incoherent blather. It doesn't make any sense. Not only is it not connected to Genesis 50 at all, um, but it, it just it doesn't make sense when you press on it. And so... Notice the prophecy isn't the cause of the event. Well, no one's saying prophecy causes things. The question is, how does God have the ability to give prophecy? And Christians have always believed it's because God has exhaustive knowledge of future events. Why do we believe that? Because the Bible says so. <laughs> okay? It's right there. That's why, you know, some people in ETS tried to get rid of the open theists because they say, no, God does not have exhaustive knowledge of future events. He cannot know what free creatures going to do, or they're not free. You can't know what an autonomous creature is going to do, or he's not autonomous. That's, that's the argument. And they're right. They're exactly right. So... It's not that the prophecy is causing the event. The question is, how does God have the knowledge of what's going to happen in the future? Now, if you just use the simple foreknowledge view, um, then you are stuck with God created and then learned what the result was. Because if he creates and forms the fabric of time, including the events within time, then he has a decree. And that means what happens has purpose and intentionality and <clears throat> all of it can result in the glory of God and all that kind of stuff, which we know they don't believe that part. Okay. But if it's just simple foreknowledge, <coughs> there cannot be purpose. It's just God saw that Judas was going to do this. It can't be that it was God's intention to use Judas in this way. Because that means then God is sovereignly ordering the events in time to a particular end. Can't do that. That destroys free will, libertarian free will as well. Gotta get rid of that. Then you have the Molinists, and I'm not even going there. <laughs> not anymore. Um, I'm so thankful that in the new... Radio Free Geneva uh, video that uh, Tim put that little segment in from the debate at the same church we're doing all the debates at in this next trip, except for one, <clears throat> um, with uh, Brother Stratton on uh, 
Mullenism, and the look on my face. Um, you gotta quit playing with the cameras here, dude. You, you, you keep you keep making the, the the lights. I'm sitting here going, what what's what's good? I, I I know, but that that was green just a second ago. Now that one's green. You're 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 trying to you're trying to do everything you can to distract me over there. See what I put up with, folks? You don't know what happens here. Okay, you just don't know. <laughs> what was I talking about? Oh yeah, um, about Bucky and and Stark's parents and the look on my face. And that was not the only time. I think the camera just didn't catch me. The number of times I was sitting there just going, "What are we doing here?" What does this have to do with scripture? It has nothing to do with scripture. So you can go the Molinist perspective, but he's not even using Molinist language here. <coughs> so then you have, um, and I'm not sure what order these came in, but I'll just read this next one. You've got the Cyrus question, <coughs> and I think it's an answer to Cyrus. It says, he could have, if he wanted to, when Jesus prophesied that Peter would deny him three times, did that mean Jesus caused Peter to want to deny Jesus, or was Jesus revealing the will of Peter? No one is arguing that God's prophecies could turn out to be wrong. We are arguing prophecy isn't causal. Well, open theists do argue repeatedly that God's prophecies were wrong. They do. They do. Um, listen to the last program I did on Unbelievable with John Sanders. He argued very strongly that prophecy is not something that is certain at all. And as I pointed out in that debate in 2014, in John 13, 19, Jesus says to the disciples, from now on I'm telling you before it takes place, so when it does take place, you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Ego I me. Jesus made his ability to reveal future events to his disciples a ground of their being able to know who he truly is, the I am. That's sort of important. <clears throat> so, yes, people are arguing. <clears throat> that God's prophecies could turn out to be wrong. But again, if you believe in libertarian free will, there is no way for God to prophesy what a truly free-willed person is going to do before they do it. Otherwise, they don't have the choice to do anything else. This is not a new conversation. I remember years and years ago in seminary, a lot of classes you take in seminary, you have these books that will give you snippets of this writer and snippets of that writer. And, snippets of and, and I, I just remember it was one of the few times that I was going, wow, this is really apologetically relevant. Um, the, the discussions before the Reformation about this topic, this very issue, it's an old one. Nothing new about it at all. And I can guarantee you the viewpoints that the provisionists are presenting were all known and rejected long, 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 long ago. Um, so also one must consider the fact that God can prophesy about something that would happen 
if things were different, therefore the thing that was prophesied actually does not happen. Like when Saul was hunting David in the city of Kilat. Well, again, one of the open theists' favorite texts and one of the Molinists' favorite texts. But all that actually happened there was David said, will they turn me over to Saul? God says, yes, they will. David leaves. He didn't say, you're going to stay here and they're going to do that. He gives wisdom to his servant. As a result, David and his men boogie someplace else. So this is not middle knowledge. This is not well, if then, anything like that at all. Here's the issue. If God reveals that Judas is going to betray Christ and reveals this in Scripture, Judas is going to do it. And it's not because, well, Judas doesn't want to, but God's going to force him. No. In reality, God restrains evil. He doesn't, again, if they had a biblical anthropology, if they had a biblical doctrine of God, if they recognized that the poison of asps is is in our lips and took it seriously, then it wouldn't be, oh, poor Judas, he's just such an innocent guy, and God's making him do bad stuff. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. If you have a biblical view, then you understand Judas is a bad guy. His heart has not been changed. He loves money. And people will do some really bad stuff for a small amount of money, which he ended up doing. But what if he decided to do that six months earlier? Hmm? You don't have a decree in provisionism. There's no decree determining these things. There's no decree forming the fabric of time. And so what if six months earlier, something unforeseen happened, and uh, a friend of Judas uh, got in trouble with the Romans, needed extra money, and Judas is like, I think I know I could get some money. You see, the crucifixion needs to take place in a certain place, at a certain time, in a certain way, to fulfill all these prophecies and to accomplish redemption. But once you get rid of the decree, now you've got all these libertarian, free, autonomous creatures just doing their things. And if you're a if you're an open theist, God doesn't even know what they are. And Leighton can say, well, yeah, God, God does know, but he can't tell us how. And still defend libertarian free will. Can't be done. Every attempt has failed. And so, why couldn't Judas decide to betray Jesus early? (coughs) Why not one of the other disciples? We're not told. Biblically, we are told that Jesus over and over again said, My hour has not yet. I want to believe in a theology that understands what that says. And that ain't provisionism. And that ain't open theism. And that ain't Molinism. At all. Um, Then the last one here. This is a gross misrepresentation of God based on bad philosophy. Knowledge is not causal. The prophet is not foretelling what God has determined Judas to do. Really? 
I would say to you, the reason the prophet can foretell what Judas is going to do is because God has decreed that it's going to happen in this way, at this time, in this place. Just like the second coming. <laughs> um, just like everything else that's certain in God's purposes. You know, all my days written in his book. That's Psalm 139. Stuff. Ah, bad philosophy. It's just Bible. We need philosophy. Uh, he is foretelling what Judas will freely choose to do. Yep, he, he, he definitely did so. He did freely choose to do. And how God will use that evil choice for his ultimate good. <clears throat> it's Judas's evil choice, but it's under the decree of God. And that's where provisionism has always just gone. Because you can't have those two biblically revealed realities. That's why when he tries to do Genesis 50, he falls apart. When he tries to do Isaiah 10, he falls apart. When he tries to do Acts 4, falls apart. Can't. Can't handle it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't have those things. <clears throat> so, but notice the, the, the utilization of philosophical language there, rather than, hey, I prefer theology, and I want my the, my philosophy to, to deal with that. Okay. Um, wow. Uh, I knew things would be going fast here. Let's close these down. And <clears throat> Trent Horn asked a question. Uh, for Protestants who object to veneration of Mary, I ask, who is the most important human person in history? M-I-H-P. I'll be honest with you. Man in... I don't know what M-I-H-P means. Oh, well. <clears throat> Not Jesus. He's a divine person. He got into some trouble with that, had to have some discussions about that. Hypostatic union, Chalcedonian definition, so on and so forth. Not John the Baptist, least in the kingdom greater than him. It's Mary, the God-bearer. What, what praise does the MI, most important human person, there it is, most important human person deserve? <clears throat> um, again, if you read the New Testament, you'd never get that idea. You'd never get that idea. Um, the writer of the Hebrews can write the, the Hall of Fame of Faith not there. Um, she describes herself as a humble servant. She's blessed amongst women. But the most important person in human history? Uh, you don't get that from Scripture. You <clears throat> Today you get it from all sorts of unbiblical, ahistorical, traditional development over centuries. But you don't get that from Scripture. You don't get that from the early church. It's really not... There are two major, historically, two major development areas. And for anybody who says, oh, you're just getting this from other people, you could go back to the church history lessons I taught in the late 90s. I think Razor's Kiss converted them from real audio to MP3, if I recall correctly. <clears throat> and they're still out there somewhere. There were like 50 some odd of them. Then I did it again. There were 80 some of them. You can go back to the 90s. Um, and I made this point back then. Very clearly, when you study early church history, the development of monasticism, the Desert Fathers, um, in the 3rd century, is an absolutely determinative point 
in the development of numerous aberrant theologies in marriage, view of women, human sexuality, all sorts of things. Uh, you can see it in Jerome and Paula. There's, we can go into a lot of that discussion. But So you've got the Desert Fathers and the development of monasticism, that form of monasticism. <coughs> and then you have the utilization, especially under uh, Cyril's emphasis, but um, coming to full fruition at Chalcedon with the use of Theotokos, Theotokos in modern Greek pronunciation, Theotokos, God-bearer. Uh, it's a Christological title, but it's in reference to Mary. Once that language is adopted, boom. Now, now, I say boom in the sense of Marian devotion. I should, you know, now I think about the, the fact that AI is producing transcripts of everything I say, boom. I'm not, I'm not sure how boom is going to come across. Boom. Um, but <clears throat> there is an explosion in Marian devotion. Titles, things like that. But you still don't have um, Immaculate Conception until Edmer, Bodily Assumption. That's, that's centuries down the line. Way, way, way down. I mean... In some instances, a thousand years down the line. Uh, but without those developments, again, outside of Scripture, you wouldn't have any of that. Um, so anyways, uh, Mary is blessed by God. But as Jesus put it, when Mary, when someone blessed the, the, the breast that nursed you, so on the womb that bore you, so on, Blessed rather is he who does the will of God. I'll take Jesus's view on that than more than the uh, later development that we have. Um, okay, and then the other thing I wanted to do, and man, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to get back to Truman here. <clears throat> Obviously, doing as much preparation as I can um, with bodily weakness and um, everything else going on. So, there is a a section in a book that Trent Horn wrote called When Protestants Argue Like Atheists, 12 Weird Ways That Anti-Catholics Mimic Secular Skeptics. Now, <clears throat> um, his call for, for example, he tells Catholics they need to use better argumentation than frequently they use. Appreciate that. I am often embarrassed uh, by comments that I see on Twitter. I was, I was embarrassed every time Francis speaks. I'm going to be embarrassed by my fellow Protestants, by some of the things they're going to say. <clears throat> um, many of them do not understand papal infallibility. Um, many of them do not understand the ramifications of that doctrine they don't know anything about, for example, what I mentioned about Theotokos. Um, there are lots of Protestants, no idea what it originally, originally meant, why it was relevant, why it's actually an orthodox description of Christ as the God-man 
and Mary's role as bearing the God-man, but not in regards to an exaltation of Mary, which has inevitably resulted uh, over time. Um, so there are a lot of bad arguments. Uh, the Jack Chick comic books. <laughs> Stuff like that. You know what? I just realized something. <clears throat> I bet. I bet Trent Horn um, has never been identified as the Antichrist by Jack Chick. But I have. I got you there, Trent. What it? I got you. Um, I haven't identified as the Antichrist, uh, but it wasn't about Roman Catholic stuff. It was about King James Onlyism and my book on the King James Only controversy. So there you go. <clears throat> but you've got the Alberto stuff, and 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 I've got another leg up on Trent. I'll bet you Alberto Rivera himself never told Trent Horn that Trent Horn was going to hell, but he did tell me. That I was going to hell because I was carrying a new American Standard Bible. <laughs> uh, ooh, that was tight. I don't know, I, you weren't watching this, but I was looking at the camera and that bus just w went between your truck and my truck. And thankfully, he slowed down a lot. <clears throat> um, I could just just see both of us going, ah, running out there. Anyways, um, so look, there are bad arguments out there. <clears throat> but I got, I get mentioned in this. And so I, I want us to think about what this argument is here. So let me read this section. Uh, very early on in the book, uh, this, according to Kindle, which can be sometimes accurate, sometimes not, page 11 of 173, so early on, um, this same complaint about disproving a universal negative can be seen in Protestant debates over Sola Scriptura. <coughs> Consider what James White said in his 1996 debate with Catholic apologist Patrick Madrid. Now, by the way, I'll just go ahead and give Trent a heads up. This will probably be on the previous thing in Dallas. But one of the things I want to find out from Trent is whether he agrees with me that the argumentation used in 1993 by Carl Keating and Patrick Madrid in their debate with the two fundamentalist guys, uh, Jackson and Nemec, um, <clears throat> that when they asked Jackson and Nemec, how do you know Matthew wrote Matthew? I want to ask Trent, do you agree with that argumentation? Because you don't know that Matthew wrote Matthew. Um, you know that every person in the Papal Biblical Commission does not know that Matthew wrote Matthew, and most of them don't believe Matthew wrote Matthew anyways. Um, so has Catholic answers changed? And would you agree that their argumentation back then was erroneous? I'd be interested in knowing. Um, anyway, so I guess this is a quotation for me. Again, Kindle doesn't always format things, right? Now, some opponents of Sola Scriptura have engaged in what can only be called cheap debating tricks and attempting to force the defender of scriptural sufficiency to prove a universal negative. That is, the less honest debater might attempt to force me to prove the non-existence of another rule of faith, since I am saying that Scripture is unique in its function as the rule of faith of the Church. Now, let me just stop. I remember this. <clears throat> it was... Uh, the what, what do they call that wind in Southern California when it blows 
The Santa Anas were blowing. And the church we were having the debate in did not have air conditioning. It was, I'd say it was about 96 degrees in the church. You're just sweating all over yourself. It was, um, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't good. Anyway, um, I forget which number debate this was. Um, but it, it, I had already done Sola Scriptura with Jerry. Uh, that was the first one we did in Long Beach. I'm not sure if there was another one between that and this one. I'm, I don't think there was. Because if this was 96, then I know I debated Jerry on Sola Scriptura in 99 on Long Island. And I think 99 was with Mitch Paqua in San Diego at a church with air conditioning. Um, so I'd have to go back and look and see exactly where it fit in all these places. But we were already getting this to where um, Catholic Answers, Catholic Answers has a long history of being hesitant to take positive positions. They, they prefer being in the negative. They prefer especially going after Sola Scriptura. <clears throat> and so we had already been having conversations with people, uh, even though this is still before internet. It's not before Fidonet. Look up Fidonet. So been having extensive dialogues at that point in time with, with people on this subject. Where they would just by default accept the claims of, of Rome and just say, well, you have to prove the non-existence of another rule of faith. We're going to accept this rule of faith. We're going to say it's infallible. <coughs> but you have to disprove it. And I'm like, well, but, and in my presentation, I said, there's positive biblical revelation as to what the nature of this rule of faith is. It's God-breathed. Um, here's what Jesus said about it. Here's what the apostles, they don't say this about anything else. In fact, they warn against tradition. And if you want to say, well, they warned against bad tradition, but you still, even if you want to talk about good tradition, will never find them speaking of quote-unquote good tradition in the way they speak of Scripture. Um, and if you want to talk about there's a big long uh, Leighton Flowers uh, tweet that just got posted. So someone, now this says 34 minutes ago. That doesn't make any sense. I wasn't even Anyway, we'll uh, we'll take a look at it. Actually, okay, this is this is in response to a tweet, so maybe he's not listening. Oh, I'm heartbroken. Um, back to our subject here uh, before we completely run out of time. <clears throat> so, um, so I said some might challenge me to demonstrate that no other rule of faith could possibly exist. To illustrate this, I call your attention to my pen. I'm sure it was a very fine cross pen, and in fact, I have a feeling it was my very nice gray cross pen. Remember, every, everybody had them. That, that, you get them for graduation, all sorts of... Who even does that anymore? Sadly. It's, now you have self-defense pens. I was giving them out at church on Sunday. Gave out nine of them at church on Sunday to folks. 
Some people liked him. Anyways, to illustrate this, I call attention to my pen. Yes, my pen. If our debate this evening was that I was going to stand here and say, this is the only pen of its kind in all the universe, how would I go about proving it? Well, the only way I could prove the statement there is no other pen like this in all the universe is if I looked in all of your purses and all of your shirt pockets. White goes on to say that he would have to search the entire universe to prove that his pen is the only one of its kind. And since that's an absurd request, it follows that those who say other pens like his exist must prove that's true by producing such a pen. He has no burden of proving there are no other pens like his one-of-a-kind pen. When applied to Scripture, the argument takes the following form. Scripture is the infallible rule of faith. In order to prove there is no other infallible rule of faith, i.e. sola scriptura, one would have to search the entire universe for another infallible rule of faith. That's an absurd request. Therefore, the one who says Scripture is not the only infallible rule of faith, i.e. deny sola scriptura, must prove the existence of another infallible rule of faith. Well, now, <clears throat> what Trent doesn't give you is the rest of my presentation where I give you the positive claims of Scripture itself in regards to its nature and talk about the nature of ultimate authorities. That ultimate authorities cannot prove their authority by reference to another authority or they're no longer an ultimate authority. So, I go through all of that, and that is central to this, and that's central to the argument that given I can do this for Scripture, and you have this scriptural testimony, and it's consistent, and has the authority of Jesus behind it, then if you're going to claim there's another aspect of this, then you need to be able to prove it. And Rome's attempts to use, well, hold the traditions you're taught by word of mouth or by letter, they fail upon examination miserably. <clears throat> so there's the full argument as it was given. But here's where the problem is. But this sounds like a common argument that atheists make. No, it can't be a common argument that atheists make. You can say it sounds like, um, but sounds like is not valid argumentation itself, especially if there are categorical differences in the foundation of what's being said. I'm saying that it's a divine revelation that Scripture is God speaking. It's divine revelation that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. It's divine revelation that Jesus said, have you not read what God spoke to you saying? That's divine revelation. Atheists don't believe in divine revelation. <clears throat> and since it's divine revelation, these things are all relevant to Scripture, if you're going to say that there is something next to Scripture that you need to have to complete Scripture or is an equal authority, then you need to be able to give the same level of argumentation that I gave for Scripture. And they can't do that. So, but this sounds like a common argument that atheists make. You could put the argument this way. Natural things are the only kinds of things that exist. Okay. That is a presupposition of the naturalistic, materialistic worldview. We're already outside of the realm of argumentation that I'm using, and that is, we have divine revelation, we need to believe all of divine revelation. And divine revelation says X, and it does not say Y. <clears throat> In order to prove that there are, there are no supernatural things, one would have to search the entire universe. That's an absurd request. Therefore, the one who says natural things are not the only things that 
uh, kinds of things must prove the existence of a supernatural thing, i.e. God. So here's what atheists will say. Presuppositionally, they will assume naturalistic materialism. And somehow, Trent thinks <coughs> that that's parallel to my saying, here's the divine revelation that we all agree on. You know, it used to be anyways, when we had debates on this stuff, we at least agreed on Scripture is Theonustos. <coughs> I don't believe, I don't believe the vast majority uh, of the people on the Papal Biblical Commission would have nearly as high a view of Scripture as I have. They wouldn't have as high a view of Scripture as Pat Madrid had. <coughs> I'm concerned with what Trent has said when he tries to argue against Theodosnaz. <coughs> We're getting bad here. I'm going to have to wrap up. Um, and his willingness to accept quote-unquote critical scholarship that rejects Pauline authorship of 2 Timothy, um, I'm not sure where they're going on that, to be honest with you. <coughs> but he says, each of these arguments begins with the assumption that a certain thing, a pen... <coughs> Scripture, the natural world, is the only member of a certain kind. I gave specific attributes of Scripture. I did not presuppositionally exalt Scripture in that way. That's where the argument falls apart. The pen was simply an illustration of something that Scripture says is unique. It's nature. Naturalistic materialism is not saying, well, it's unique in having these characteristics. It's just simply saying that's all there is. So there's a fundamental <coughs> category error in the argument. But these arguments are flawed because the assumption in their first premises is never proved. The assumption in the premises is what is given by Scripture itself of itself. Um, and so that's why, that's why I'm a little surprised uh, that this argument would be presented. A little disappointing, but wanted to respond to it and pretty much start running out of juice at that point. Uh, voice juice, I guess, is what we're doing. So <clears throat> I apologize. I didn't get back to um, Carl Truman. It would fit right along with it. Um, let me at least try the, the, the thing that I told you would at least fit. How's that? I will try to, if I pull, if I speak more slowly, and pull the volume back, I'll, I'll be good. Maybe. We'll see. We didn't test this. Also, I think one of the things that, the, that we need to be aware of, that history makes us aware of, is the way doctrine develops. Now, that's a controversial term in some circles. When I say doctrine develops, what I really don't mean is the truth changes. That, I think, is how we tend to think of it. That, I suspect, is how the current Pope thinks of it as well, but that's a, a discussion for a different day. Uh, the expression, the formulation of doctrine changes over time. The grasp of truth deepens over time, such that things that one could get away with saying about the second person of the Trinity at the beginning of the fourth century, one cannot say them at the end of the fourth century. Okay. <clears throat> doctrinal development. We need to recognize we live in a day where that has a very 
important central meaning within Roman Catholicism, thanks to John Henry Cardinal Newman and those who've come after him. Yves Congar, that whole area that most Protestants don't have any knowledge of. I appreciate that he said the formulation and expression. Truth doesn't change, but our formulation and expression of that necessarily changes over time as we encounter uh, new questions, new issues. But at the same time, and this is very, very important, at the same time, doctrinal development and development of tradition must be distinguished from one another. I think it would be I think it would be simplistic, very easy, an easy task. And Carl can do this to demonstrate what happens <clears throat> when you have a development in doctrine due to a controversy that then is taken as the foundation for another development and then another development and another development over time. That's how purgatory comes into existence. That's how the Immaculate Conception comes into existence. It's one small step of doctrinal development creating tradition and the key issue. We were just talking in response to a Roman Catholic. <clears throat> How do you distinguish between valid doctrinal development in the sense of expression, answering of questions, let's use the illustration I've used before, Staying within the range of the headlights. Not running out into the darkness. Staying within the range of the headlights so that the things that we are saying are good and necessary consequences of what is in biblical revelation. That's the issue. Rome says the bodily assumption of Mary is a good and necessary consequence of that which is found in Revelation. The problem is that Revelation is not limited to Scripture. <clears throat> Instead, you have a living magisterium that can reflect upon the content of the deposit of faith and come up with all sorts of wacky stuff that the apostles never believed and never would have believed. So you can't go there. But how far can you go? It really seems like a lot of Protestants are exceptionally um, nervous about anyone asking this question. Where do we draw the line? There's one other section that falls out. I'm going to play that and we're going to wrap up. I was very helped in this by uh, the essay by the Catholic theologian Bernard Lonergan discussing, mapping out the way theology moves towards the Nicene formulation. Now, <clears throat> I'll, I'll mark this as our new starting point because we're, we're, we are really close um, being done. But, um, 
I'm trying to. Oop. Didn't want to do that. Um, oh, that's how you do it. Okay. <clears throat> I wanted you to hear what he said. Mapping out the development to the Nicene tradition. It's a short period of time. Very short period of time in comparison to where we are today. And you must understand, and I know that Carl Truman does understand this, but everyone listening to Carl Truman needs to understand it as well. <clears throat> Roman Catholics use the concept of doctrinal development to the Nicene standards to then substantiate doctrinal development, and not just, not just the Nicene symbol, but to canons and decrees. And then that's used to go to Ephesus and go to Chalcedon. Not just the symbols, but the canons and decrees. Leo's tome comes in there. Pope, Pope Leo's tome comes in there. And you need to understand that from their perspective, once you establish those parameters for doctrinal development, that's what leads you to the doctrinal development of everything else. Ecclesiology, sacramentology, soteriology. It's all the same thing. And you see by the time you get to Nicaea 2, just how corrupt this has become. I've said over and over again, the, the biblical argumentation used to defend the veneration of icons at Nicaea 2 is light years from the argumentation Athanasius will use to defend the Nicene symbol during the Arian resurgence. And there's only 400 years between them. But that's how fast this kind of deviating doctrinal development can take place. And so I'm just simply saying to my fellow Christians, you have to consider these things and when you do have that deviation, what is the only way that you can recognize it? If this is where the truth is, and then there's this much of a deviation, and then this much afterwards, and this much afterwards, how do you know? where? Because if you get to this point, and you now accept the idea that you need to have this to interpret this, how can you have any reformation? Just asking the question. Just asking the question. Sorry about getting all of a sudden quiet. There's 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 guys in trucks cranking the volume up right now, trying to trying to hear what I'm <clears throat> what I'm saying. I appreciate your listen. Appreciate your putting up with my coughing and <clears throat> hacking and everything else. I apologize. Um, <clears throat> just the best we can do today. Lord willing, maybe next week will be a little bit better. We'll we'll see because I pick up <coughs> actually next. Tuesday, which is when we should be doing the program, um, is when I pick up the uh, RV and begin to do the stuff that we need to do to get it ready to go. So there you go. Be praying for us. We'll see you next time. God bless.